Blog Talk Radio. And now, shining the light of biblical truth, this is Truth Be Told Radio with your host, Melissa Canchola. That's right, this is Truth Be Told Radio, and I'm your host, Melissa Canchola. And I get started with the lesson. This is The Privilege of Prayer, and it's with Dr. Vodi Dutton, based on Exodus 2.23-25. I would ask you the question, but I already know the answer. I would ask you if there's ever been anything prayed for for a long time without having an answer. But I'm not going to ask you that because I, I know the answer to that question. I know that you've done that. And I also know what it was like when you did that. Because here's what happens with us. We, we come before God with this issue, and it is the most pressing issue in our life, the most pressing issue in our world. And we bombard heaven with this issue again and again and again. And then we grow weary. We get tired of praying about the same thing. We get tired of asking for the same thing. And then after a while, we realize that we haven't been praying for it as much as we were praying for it before. And now we feel guilty because it is an important thing. And we should be praying about this important thing. And we've stopped praying about this important thing. And so now we pray about the fact that we're not praying about this important thing that we ought to be praying about more than we pray about it. And so we go back to praying about it again. And yet, as we go back to praying about it again, we begin to ask ourselves, what's going to be different this time? And we continue to pray. And we continue to pray. And everything in our culture moves us to believe and expect that things ought to happen quickly. We are victims of the 22-minute sitcom, microwave popcorn. And we just believe that things ought to happen quickly. And when they don't happen quickly, we don't know how to endure. We don't read big books anymore. Schools don't even require people to read big books anymore. Moby Dick, what is that? It's too big. It's too long. Nobody's going to endure through that. We don't endure through that. Preachers don't preach long sermons anymore. Well, in other places. We're told in preaching class, keep your sermons to 20 minutes or less. Because people will not endure. They can't endure. We can't concentrate. We can't bear up. We can't press through. It's just not in us. And yet, there are things that we wait for and we hope for and we pray for that require us to continue to press, to continue to hope, to continue to pray. And there is this tension, this tension between the belief that it should have already happened and the knowledge that we got to continue to pray. And there's where sin enters in. That's when we begin to have sinful, unbiblical, unhealthy attitudes about ourselves, about God, about our circumstances, about prayer. 
We begin to interpret things based on our experience, based on what we feel. We begin to interpret who God is and how God actually considers us based on how long it's taking for God to answer the prayer. We begin to interpret who we are in God's sight based on whether or not he comes through in this prayer. Am I really his child? Am I really a Christian? Does he really love me? Is he really there? All because it's taking a while. And there are several things that come together here, several theological realities that come together here. One is the tension between the sovereignty of God and prayer. Because this is another thing that happens when we continue to persist in prayer, especially for us Calvinists, right? Well, God is sovereign, right? He's decreed whatsoever will come to pass anyway. So why am I praying and crying out to God like this if I believe that God is sovereign? And yet the scriptures tell me that I should bring these things to him in prayer. So on the one hand, the Bible tells me that God is sovereign, and I believe that God is sovereign. And on the other hand, the Bible seems to be teaching me that I need to persist in prayer. We've even got this parable of this persistent widow. Asking, seeking, knocking. We continue to ask, continue to seek, continue to knock. Pray without ceasing. And so there is this tension there. Beyond that tension, there is the tension of the problem of evil and suffering. Because usually when we're praying like this, when we're praying long and we're praying hard, it's because we're enduring something that's not good. Amen? Last, last time I checked, it's never been my experience. I haven't been a pastor all that long. Okay? I've only been preaching about 25 years, so maybe it could happen. But I have not yet had a person come up to me and say, Pastor, I've just been praying and praying and praying. I pray till I get tired of praying, and then I get guilty because I'm not praying anymore. And so I start praying again about being guilty about not praying, and then I get back to praying again and again and again, and God's just not answering. Well, what are you praying about? Things are just so good, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm asking God to do something about how good things are because I just can't take it. That's not when we are persisting in prayer. Generally, when we're persisting in prayer, there's something ailing us. There's something troubling us. There's something hounding us. There's something eating away at us. There's something frightening us. There's something oppressing us. There's something hurting us. There's something discouraging us. There's something confusing us. That's when we persist. And then, if we're not careful, we fall prey to that age-old question. Why would an all-good and all-powerful God, dot, dot, dot? Well, in the last paragraph of Exodus chapter 2, I believe we have something that answers these deep theological questions, that encourages us, in the midst of sustaining prayer, ongoing unanswered prayer, that rebukes us as we think wrongly about ourselves and about God and about our circumstances. 
and that informs us as to what is actually going on and puts us in a right posture as it relates to these kinds of circumstances. In other words, it teaches us how to think about prayer when prayers aren't being answered. Genesis chapter, or Exodus chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. This paragraph is divided rather evenly into two halves. The first half looks at things from the perspective of earth. The second half looks at things from the perspective of heaven. And the unfortunate thing for us, and the reason that we get off track, is because we only think about our prayer from the perspective of earth, from the perspective of the circumstances that we can see. But God gives us a glimpse in this paragraph into things that we cannot see that are going on in the midst of our circumstances that helps us to think about prayer rightly in this regard. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. Interesting, during those many days. Moses is 40 years old when he comes here to the wilderness in Midian. He's 80 years old when he goes back to deliver. So he's close to 80 now. It's been 40 years. But the author just says, during those many days. This is how Moses reflected on his time as he wrote. The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. There's the perspective from heaven. This is the transition, or from earth, rather. Now there's transition. The transition is that phrase. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then from heaven's perspective, listen to this. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. Those four words are absolutely critical for sustaining prayer when we don't see answers. And that's what I want us to concentrate on here. The backdrop of this is that, again, Moses is in the wilderness because the king, the pharaoh, has discovered what he has done in killing an Egyptian. He's there for 40 years. The question is, when and how is the transition going to come? We know that he's here in order to be transitioned. We know that he's here. We looked on last week at the things that God is doing with him in order to make him fit for his calling. But, but, but he can't just stay here forever. If he's going to be this great deliverer, he's got to eventually go back. So what's the trigger here? Well, the trigger here is the death of the king. So during these many days, the king of Egypt died. And when the king of Egypt dies, the people of Israel sort of, you know, they, 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 they reignite their groaning because there is a reigniting, if you will, of their oppression. And it's in the midst of this that we hear those four words. And that's what I want us to examine, those four words. In light of this experience that we all have of trying to persist in prayer without falling into sin. And the first one is this, God heard. 
not heard. Saints, you need to know God hears your groanings. God hears the groanings of his people. God is not deaf to the groanings of his people. The natural tendency of the suffering saint is to assume that God does not hear. That's just natural. We're praying, and we're praying, and we're praying, and nothing's happening. And it's not as though when we pray that there are audible voices that come back to us and say, yeah, I I heard that. It's not like other conversations. You know, other conversations, you have a conversation with another person, and you look at the person, and you're saying something, and generally, people don't just sort of stand there and look at you like this while you're talking. If they do, you sort of get discouraged and distracted. Right? Generally, what we do when we're listening to one another is we give clues or cues so that people know we're listening. And so we're nodding the head. And you go, okay, now they're listening to me because they're nodding the head. You know, or they shake the head. If they're supposed to shake the head, okay, they're listening because they shook the head. Or they smile, you know, or yeah, they're listening because they smile, you know. Or they go, mm hmm, yeah, to let you know and you get that response. And that's what communication is happening. But when we're in the midst of our despair and we're praying, we can't see God nodding his head. We can't hear him going, "Mm mm-hmm. And our natural tendency is to look at our circumstances that aren't changing and to assume that God has not heard. This text says different. Israel was assuming that God hadn't heard. They're groaning and crying out to God for a deliverer, and it hasn't happened. It's been four centuries And it hasn't happened. We believe he hasn't heard, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. Saying that we believe that God doesn't hear us really means that we doubt that God cares for us. And that's where we begin to sin. God didn't really care for me. Why? Because he hasn't heard me. If he really cared for me, he would hear me. I'm praying, I'm groaning, I'm crying out. And there's nothing that indicates that God's hearing. So he must not care. If he cared, he would hear. He doesn't hear, therefore he doesn't care. We also fear the worst. I'm praying and I'm crying out. God doesn't hear me. That means this thing's probably going to get worse because God's the only one who can help me. And if he's not hearing me, it can't get better. Sometimes we turn from following God. We got an email recently, his elders, from someone who basically said, I don't believe God's there. I'm not going to follow him anymore. Basically because I've been praying, I've been crying out, I've been groaning, and he hasn't heard. He hasn't heard. So if he's not going to hear me, why am I going to persist? We shake our fists at God. We get angry with God. How dare he not hear when we pray? The Bible, however, makes it clear that God does hear us when we pray. Psalm fifty-five, seventeen: Evening and morning and at noon, I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. Amen. Proverbs fifteen twenty nine. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. First John five, fourteen and fifteen. 
And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked from him. God hears us. So it is wrong, it is erroneous for us to assume that he's not hearing. And it's also erroneous for us to assume that because he's not hearing, that these other things are true. He doesn't care for us. The worst is ahead of us. We shouldn't follow him. But there's several things that we need to remember. First is this. It is a privilege to be heard by God. And I mean just to be heard by God is a privilege. That in and of itself is a privilege. I'm not saying it's a privilege to be heard by God when God does what you've asked God to do. That's not what I said. What I said was it's a privilege just to be heard by God. If you never get another affirmative answer to prayer, God's been better to you than you deserve just by hearing you when you pray. God is upholding the universe by the power of his might. And yet, God hears us. Think about that. He flung the stars into space. And he upholds them and sustains them. The entire universe is being upheld and sustained by our God. He's busy, people. And yet, he hears us. It's a privilege. We are sinful, insignificant creatures in the grand scheme of things. And yet God hears us. How dare I think that God owes me a hearing? God owes me death and judgment. That's all God owes me. And yet he hears me when I pray. It's a privilege to be heard by God. We are mistaken when we believe that God owes us a hearing because he doesn't. God doesn't owe us anything actually a form of arrogance to accuse God of wrongdoing because we believe that he has not given us the hearing that we deserve. It's arrogance and pride. How dare you not listen to me? How dare you not hear my voice? As though God owes you a hearing. He doesn't owe you a hearing. And besides that, as his children, he does hear us when we pray. Amen? So it's doubly sinful. Number one, you're accusing him of something that's false. And secondly, you're accusing him of something that even if it was true, it wouldn't be wrong on his part. God doesn't have to hear you, and yet he does. And that in and of itself is a privilege. We must remember that it is a comfort to be heard by God. Not just a privilege, it's a, it's a great comfort to be heard by God. Through prayer, we have communion with the Most High God. This is communion with God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. God hears you. God's with you. Your prayers are being heard. Don't forget that. As I've been going through this text, and as I've been preparing this, my prayer has been, God, would you please change my heart? Because generally speaking, I don't believe this. I don't believe that it's a privilege just to be heard by God. And I don't believe that it's enough just to be heard by God. I think the only reason for me to rejoice is if I have something that is concerning me and I bring it to God and God does what I tell him to do. 
That's how arrogant and prideful I am. That if God doesn't just hop to it and do what I told him to do, he's not worthy of my praise because he hasn't done anything worthy of my praise. My prayer has been, God, would you crush that? And would you cause me to realize that just the fact that I can lay prostrate before the holy and righteous God of the universe who ought to judge me and that I can cry out to him and know that he hears me, that that's enough. To be able to walk out of the prayer closet and have someone say, did you get what you asked for? No. Then why are you smiling? Because the God of the universe heard me when I prayed and I had communion and fellowship with him in the midst of my suffering. He hears me. I'm not alone. God hears me. Whatever we're suffering, it is, number one, temporary. Amen? Whatever it is, it's temporary. Even if, even if it kills you, it's temporary. Because you're not going to carry it into eternity. Right? It's temporary, whatever it is. And secondly, it's not worthy of compare with what awaits us. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8, 18, 18 and 19. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul says, whatever I'm suffering, it's not even worthy to be compared to what awaits me. Only when we realize these truths do we realize the great comfort that it is to know that God hears us. Just that alone is of great comfort. The other thing that you need to realize is this. That the world is not a black and white Western. And oftentimes we accuse God in these instances because we believe the world is a black and white Western. And we believe that there are good guys and that there are bad guys and that we're always the good guys. And even when we read this text, you know the tendency? The tendency here is to look at this and say, Israel, good guys. Egypt, bad guys. The fact of the matter is, Israel's not good. They rejected their own deliverer too. Or do you not remember that? Israel's not innocent in this. Israel's not good in this. We need to remember that. Israel is in need of a deliverer, not just from Egypt, but from sin as well. They are sinners. And you are a sinner. And one of the reasons we shake our fists at God is because we actually believe. That God owes us something. The second truth we need to know is this. Not only does God hear, but God remembers. But what does he remember? He remembers his covenant. The text says he remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This is crucial. This is crucial when we talk about our prayers. First, God didn't remember Israel because they were the good guys. They were not innocent, and they were not sinless. God didn't owe them anything. There is none good but God. We've got to keep that in mind. 
and I'm not a good guy either, which means that I'm wrong when I accuse God because of these reasons. Consider the good things that we recall when pining over God's failure to rescue us. I prayed to you, God, and you didn't rescue me. I'm a good person, and you didn't rescue me. I prayed to you, God, and you didn't rescue me. I go to church, and you didn't rescue me. I prayed to God, and you didn't rescue me. I don't do all the bad things that other people do, and you didn't rescue me. See, these are the things. We actually believe that God owes us something. We actually believe that we have a standing before God in and of ourselves that makes God owe us something. Or this one, I'm a Christian, God. I have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior of my life, and you didn't do what I asked you to do. Folks, God remembers his covenant. God answers prayer in accordance with his will. Even Jesus prayed, your will be done, not mine. You see, part of the problem is that we assume that we know the best thing in a given circumstance. We assume that what God ought to do is take our advice and do what we say, because the universe will run better if he just does that. After all, I'm a good person. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm not as bad as other people. How dare you not do what I asked you to do? You owe me, God. We ought to be frightened that that thought even enters into our head. Anyone who knows what God owes him ought never say, God, you owe me. Amen? God remembered his covenant, and God remembered his redemptive purpose. We have to keep this in mind as we pray. God does not exist to give us what we want. God orders all things according to his will and according to his redemptive purpose. And this is why me not receiving what I ask is never an indictment against God's goodness or God's character. Again, how can I know that I serve a God who crushed and killed his own son who was spotless and sinless in order to bring glory to his name and somehow think that me enduring whatever I endure makes him unjust. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Who do you think you are? That Christ suffered for the glory of the Father, the sinless Lamb of God. Not only did Christ never do anything wrong, he did everything right. Not only did he do everything right, he is God in the flesh. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. The Son is that. He is the pure radiance of God wrapped in flesh. And he suffered and he groaned. He cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Probably for hours. Sweat drops of blood. And yet he was not delivered. And I have the audacity to pray for a few weeks because of something that's bothering me and think that God owes me something that he didn't even give to Jesus when it came to his glory. How dare I? How dare you? It is a privilege just to be heard. It is a privilege not to be crushed under the weight of my own sinfulness, let, let alone the weight of his majesty. It is a privilege not to have to come trembling and fearing 
for a holy and righteous God. It is a privilege not to be afraid of the fire and the smoke. It is a privilege. And it's enough. God remembers his covenant. And when we pray, we need to know that God is working all things according to his will. And many of the things that I ask are not according to his will. And I don't even know that. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know what God is doing. The only way I figure that out is when I look at it from the backside. And how many times have we come to God, cried out to God, begged God, prayed to God, and it didn't come out the way we wanted it to come out. And then years later, you turn around and you look and you say to yourself, looking backwards at God's providence, I couldn't have asked for a better outcome. Or you look at what God has turned you into, this trophy of grace that you've become because of the suffering that you endured, because of the obedience that you learned through enduring suffering, because of the glory that God gained through your life, because of the way you endured the suffering. And you look back and say, I never would have asked for this, but God used it. You don't even know how to pray. And yet you assume that God ought to do what you say. You don't see the whole picture. You don't understand the whole picture. You don't know. But we do know that God hears. And we do know that God remembers his covenant. God is not going to deny his covenant. Thirdly, we know that God sees. Here's the burning question. How could God see this and not act? Don't you know that Israel asked that? How could God see this and not act? How could he not see the Egyptians and who they are and what they're doing and not act? How could he? How could he? How could he? This is where we get to this whole thing of the problem of evil and suffering. The answer is God sees. God sees. Psalm 121, verses 1 to 8. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is not just temporal, folks. The Lord keeps his people. The Lord keeps his people. Does that mean his people don't suffer? You know that's not true. We're reading Exodus. Amen? But the Lord keeps his people, and the Lord keeps his promise. God is watching. God sees. Oftentimes we think the only way that I could be dealing with this is if God wasn't watching, God's not seeing. God sees. He always sees. When you've got that bad diagnosis, God was watching. When your heart was broken, God was watching. When your loved one died, God was watching. When you suffered that miscarriage, God was watching. 
when the storm destroyed all you had, God was watching. When that child went astray, God was watching. When your parents divorced, God was watching. When you lost your job, God was watching. And on and on and on and on and on, don't you dare say God wasn't watching. When that horrible thing happened to you, God was watching. Don't you dare say that. But why is this comfort to us? Because it seems like it's not comfort. Why would it be a comfort for you to say to me that when that horrible thing happened, God was watching? That doesn't comfort me. Because if God really loved me, he would have stopped that thing from happening. Watch yourself. You're judging God again. The reason that that's a comfort is because the alternative is absolutely unthinkable. If God wasn't watching when that horrible thing happened to you, then that means he's not sovereign, he's not in control, and you have no reason to hope that he is going to work all things together for your good. Because there's things he doesn't see. There's things he doesn't know. There's things he doesn't control. You better be careful. We try to protect God from the implications of his sovereignty. Because we think that if we hold on to a sovereign God, then somehow we have to blame God for evil. That's only because you believe that God owes you protection from evil, and he doesn't. Because the minute God starts wiping out all evil, you're on the list too. You see, here's the problem when we start thinking about evil. The problem is we only think about God dealing with the evil out there and never think about God dealing with the evil in here. Other people do things because they're evil. I do things because people don't understand me. You were wrong, and you meant what you did. I just made a mistake, and you didn't understand. You're evil. I just sometimes misstep. And it's because we view the world this way that we have the audacity to shake our fist at God. It's because we think about things this way that we have the audacity to blame God. It's because we think that here's, here's how a hurricane ought to come ashore. A hurricane ought to come ashore like this. It blows in, and its winds come 100, 110, 120 miles an hour. The storm surge comes, and it washes ashore. And the good people who go to church should have the water and the wind go around their houses while everybody else is wiped out. God help you if that's the way you think the universe ought to operate. It causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. We don't serve God because serving God exempts us from suffering. We serve God because God is God. And in spite of my suffering, he's worthy. And whatever it is that I'm suffering, it's better than I deserve. It's better than I deserve. You stand there before a house that's been washed out by the storm. The Christian's response ought not to be, God, you weren't watching. The Christian's response ought to be, God, I deserve to have been washed away with that house. Finally, God knows. God knows. 
Oh, this is so important. Because so far we have this picture of a sovereign God. And it's wonderful to have this picture of a sovereign God. But this last word gives us a picture of an intimate, loving God. God knows. This means that he loves us and he pities us. God knows. God knows, first and foremost, which circumstances will maximize his glory. And if that is the goal and the desire of my life, I embrace my suffering to the degree that it maximizes God's glory. God knows what you really need. He does. God knows what you really need. And evidently, deliverance from this particular thing at this particular time is not what I need. If it was, that would be what God gave. And I know this because I know God. God knows what you can bear. Oh, how many times have I heard people say, I just can't take this anymore. And then I see him again tomorrow. Amen, somebody. (laughs) Right? How many times have you done, I just can't take this anymore. And then you wake up the next day. Guess what? You took it some more. Amen? God knows what you can bear. God also knows your deliverer is coming. And you know the good news? God is your deliverer. God is your deliverer. Do you know the worst thing that you are oppressed with in this life? It's the thing that you are least likely to bombard heaven about. The worst thing that you're oppressed with in this life is not your failing health. That's not the worst thing that you're oppressed with in this life. The worst thing that you're oppressed with in this life is not the disappointment of your circumstances. The worst thing that you're oppressed with in this life is not loss. It's not people sinning against you. The worst thing that you are oppressed with in this life is your sin. That's the worst thing that you're oppressed with in this life. Because there is a holy and righteous God who demands righteousness, and yet you sin against him. That's the worst thing on your plate. I don't care what else you've ever dealt with. That's the worst thing on your plate. You sin every day, all day, against a holy and righteous God. That's worse than a bad diagnosis from the doctor. Bad diagnosis from the doctor, what does that mean? Again, last time I checked, death rate was one per person. Nobody gets out of here alive. Amen? What's a bad diagnosis from your doctor in light of that? Well, here's what I know. Sin separates us from God. A bad diagnosis from a doctor can't separate you from God. Sin can. Sin is the worst thing on your plate. It's the worst thing that you deal with. Israel's sin is worse than Israel's captivity. Yet they cried out for deliverance from their sin, but not from the captivity, but not for deliverance from their sin. And that's you and me too. Everything else in my life, I shake my fist at God, but I make little of my sin. How many tears have you cried begging God to deliver you from your sin? 
How many sleepless nights have you spent crying out to a holy God to make you righteous? How many? How many? We don't do it. We pray that other people will be good to us. We pray that other people will stop disappointing us. We pray that other people will stop sinning against us. We pray that circumstances will stop being bad. We pray that storms will stop coming. We pray that financial ruin will stop coming, but we don't pray that we'll stop sinning. And that's the worst thing on your plate. By far, it's the worst thing on your plate. In fact, everything else that you deal with is a result of sin. Yours or another's. And if you can't figure out which, just go back to Adam. Amen? Why do storms come? Ultimately, even the ground was cursed because of him, right? Because of what? Because of sin. Why do our bodies decay? Why do we get diseases? Because of sin. Why do we alienate and hurt one another? Because of sin. You see, when all you look at is your circumstances and the things that you don't like, the things that you don't want, what you're doing is you're missing the bigger picture. You don't need a deliverer from hurricanes and from diseases and from heartache and pain. You need a deliverer from sin, and that's precisely what God brought about. The book of Exodus does not end with Israel coming out of Egypt. It ends with the tabernacle. Because Israel didn't just need to get out of Egypt. They needed to get into a relationship with God. They needed sacrifice for sin. They needed spiritual deliverance. And that's what you and I need more than anything else. Does that mean these other things don't hurt? Absolutely not. But it puts them in perspective. Where was God? That's a question we get a lot. Pastor, this happened to me and it hurt. Where was God? The answer to that question, and it's not original to me, is that when that thing happened to you, God was in the exact same place he was in when his own son was crushed and killed for sin, not his own. That's where God was. And that's where God remains. And that's where God will be. I don't know what that thing is that keeps you up late praying. I don't know what that thing is that gives you that tendency to shake your fist at God. I don't know what that thing is that causes you to believe that God has done you wrong. But whatever it is, know this. Jesus Christ. 
not have a Savior who cannot identify with us. What are you dealing with? You're dealing with loss. You're dealing with pain. You're dealing with disappointment. You're dealing with rejection. You're dealing with, the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. God knows. Why? Because Christ was tempted at every point that we are, and yet without sin. Christ endured rejection. Christ endured the cross. Christ endured death. Christ endured shame. Christ endured everything. So whatever it is, not only does Christ know your circumstances and know you, but he knows your pain. And he knew it without deserving it. And he overcame it at the cross. So here's the prayer. God, I've been praying about this thing for so long, and it's not changing, and my tendency is to be discouraged. But thank you that you hear me. Grant by your grace that I would just be satisfied in that, that I would be satisfied knowing that while I walk through this, I can call on the God of the universe and that you hear me. And God, make that enough for me. Make it enough, make it enough, make it enough. You hear, I'm heard. I'm heard. You remember your covenant. And I'm your child. And you call all, cause all things to work together for good to those who love you or who are called according to your purpose. This doesn't mean that everything is good. This doesn't mean that everything is easy. But it means that you will work those things together for good. And ultimately, my greatest good is your greatest glory. You see. You see everything that's happened to me. And there's nothing that's happened to me that's caught you by surprise. You see, this didn't happen because you're sleeping and because you're slumbering. You're in control. And that's good news because it means that I can trust you. And you know. You know me because I'm your child. You know my circumstances because you're God. And you know my pain. Because you made him who knew no sin to become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know intimately, beyond a shadow of any doubt. And so would you give me what I need to walk another day? Would you give me what I need to trust you in spite of my circumstances? Would you give me what I need in order to wait for the full measure of my deliverance to come. Because it will. Because it has. You see, ultimately, the greatest need that you have is your need for Christ. So ultimately, there is a sense in which the greatest prayer for us to pray in the midst of our suffering is, Lord, use this, number one, to drive me to the cross. Use this to drive me to Jesus Christ. And secondly, use this to conform me to his image and make me more like him. Don't waste my suffering. Don't waste my suffering. God, please use my suffering to make me more like Jesus. Use my suffering to make me more humble. Use my suffering to make me more dependent. Use my suffering to make me weaker. Use my suffering to make me trust more. Use my suffering in order to pry 
have my hands open to let go of the things of this world. Use my suffering to make me long for eternity. Use my suffering to crush my pride. Use my suffering to make me more like Christ. There's a prayer. There's a prayer that we can look forward to being answered always in the affirmative. But are you willing to pray it? Are you willing to ask God for that? Because it's a whole lot easier to say, God, I don't like this. Would you take it away? I don't like that. Would you make it not so? Cling to the cross. Flee to Christ. He is your hope. He is your deliverer. He is your answer. Let's pray. Lord God, we bow before you, the God who hears and remembers and sees and knows. We bow before you in the midst of our suffering and our grief and our pain and our sorrow. We bow before you in the midst of our arrogance and our pride and our selfishness, and we ask that you might meet us there, that you might be our deliverer there, that you might cause our hearts to cry out for holiness and righteousness more than we cry out for deliverance from circumstances. That you might guard us against that knee-jerk tendency to accuse you of doing wrong simply because you haven't done what we demand. Grant that we might trust you, that we might trust your heart even when we can't see your hand when we can't figure out what you're doing or why you're doing it, may we trust in the character that you have revealed through the person and work of Christ. Thank God, would you make us as keenly aware of our own sin as we are of the sins of others and as desirous to see it eradicated as we are to see our circumstances change. Conform us to the image of Christ. We pray this. We ask this. We beg you for this. In Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Puberty blockers. Life-saving? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on the Bible's reliability and authority. Our culture today says gender is fluid, and that biology has nothing to do with it. Boys can be girls, and girls, boys. This is what's being taught as fact to our children every day in the public school system. And many children are falling prey to this ideology, wanting to change their gender. This often leads them to use puberty blocks. Now, we're told these save lives delaying puberty until children can decide who they are. But these drugs 
are very dangerous decreasing bone density, causing infertility and chronic back pain. They can also impact the brain and more. When we reject God's design for male and female, pain follows. Discover more about gender and what God's Word says when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. For answers to the relevant questions of the day, go to AnswersRadio.com. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is worship? Perhaps you have thought of worship as singing worship songs, maybe going to church, reading your Bible, prayer. These are certainly ways we worship God, but true worship is loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Earlier in Romans, Paul talked about those who worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. But Jesus said, you shall worship, meaning bow before the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. God is merciful, forgiving your sins through faith in Jesus. He has offered himself as an atoning sacrifice, so you must offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Turning from sin and living a life of purity and obedience, submitting to the will of the Father as Jesus did, this is worship. Do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. How do we know what God's will is? By reading the Bible. There Jesus says that the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for he alone is worthy of our worship when we understand the text. Not too long ago, a woman from Oakland, California, spoke to me and she was angry. She was very distressed. And what she said was this. She said that she was angry with her pastor. I said, well, why are you angry with your pastor? She said, I get the feeling that for some reason my minister every Sunday morning is doing everything that he can to conceal the true identity of God from the congregation. She said, I come to church and I long to have an opportunity to worship, to have my soul experience reverence for God and adoration. She said, but the God that I'm hearing about is a God has been defanged. He's been tamed. He has become innocuous. And she says, I'm sure that the reason the minister does this is because he doesn't want to frighten people by explaining the true character of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how accurate that woman's complaint was, but I know we all have a tendency to soft-pedal the biblical portrait of God, and there's a reason for that. The reason is this that the holiness of God is traumatic to unholy people. And that becomes clear if we look at the rest of the text of Isaiah. We've seen already Isaiah's record of his vision of the holiness of God. 
And what I'd like to look at now is what happened to Isaiah in response to what he saw. Before I do that, let me make this comment that in the early chapters of the Institutes of the Christian Religion written by John Calvin, Calvin makes a statement that goes something like this. Hence, that dread and terror by which holy men of old trembled before God, comma, as Scripture uniformly relates. What Calvin was saying is this, that there is a pattern to human responses to the presence of God in the Scripture. And it seems that the more righteous the person is described, the more he trembles when he enters the immediate presence of God. There is nothing cavalier or casual about the response of Habakkuk when he meets the holy God. Do you remember Habakkuk's complaint where he saw all of the degradation and injustices that were sweeping across the landscape in his homeland? And he was so offended by this that he went up into his watchtower and he complained against God and he said, God, you are so holy that you can't even behold iniquity. How can you stand by and let all of these things come to pass? And he said, I'm going to sit up here and I'm going to wait until God answers my question. And you remember what happened? When God appeared to Habakkuk, he said, My lips quivered. My belly trembled and rottenness entered into my bone. What happened to Job when he waited for the voice of God? And when God showed himself to Job, Job said, I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. I have spoken once. I'll speak no more. I will take my hand and put it upon my mouth. As Calvin said, the uniform report of sacred scripture is that every human being who ever is exposed to the holiness of God trembles in his presence. That was no less true of Isaiah. Now think of Isaiah. I I haven't made a, uh, a moral survey of 8th century Israel, but I can't imagine that there was any human being running around in the Jewish nation at that time who, humanly speaking, was more righteous than Isaiah. Isaiah was about as righteous as human beings could, could be found in those days. And he has this glimpse of the holiness of God, and the first thing he does when he sees the holiness of God is that he cries out in terror, and the old King James Version records his words as saying this, Woe is me, for I am undone. 
Now, I know that more recent translations have tried to change the, the language there of Isaiah because nobody talks like that anymore. Nobody says, woe is me. The word's kind of uh, antiquated. The, the expression is uh, an archaism. Uh, it, it's like somebody saying, forsooth, or alas, and alack. Nobody talks that way, unless you have some Jewish friends. Sometimes when things go wrong, they'll say, oy vey, it's near, which is the Yiddish uh, rendition of the same verbiage here, woe is me. But for the most part, we don't hear people talk like that in our culture. And so translators, in trying to communicate the Word of God in modern verbiage, will do away with some of this archaic language. But when we do that, sadly, we're in danger of missing another one of those semi-hidden gems of biblical literature. There is a reason why Isaiah used the word woe. In the Old Testament, a prophet was a human being who was anointed by God to be a spokesman for God. The simple definition that distinguished the prophet from the priest in Israel was this, that it was the task of the priest to speak to God in behalf of the people. It was the task of the prophet to speak to the people in behalf of God. So that when the prophet uttered his message, he wouldn't preface his statement by saying, in my humble opinion, or it is my judgment that, or I think that perhaps this may be the case. That's not how they addressed the people. You know what they did. When they gave their message, they prefaced their words by saying what? Thus saith the Lord because they understood that they were vessels of divine announcements. Now, again, the literary form that was common to the prophet of Israel was the form that we call the oracle. You've heard, I'm sure, of a Greek oracle, the oracle of Delphi who would give these announcements about the future. Well, among the Jews, the oracular literary device, the oracle, was of two types. There were oracles of weal and oracles of woe. Now, that means simply this, that there were announcements that came from God that were good news, and there are announcements that came from God that were bad news. An oracle of weal or an oracle of prosperity used a word that was important to this oracle among the Jews to introduce the good news, and it was the word blessed. Jesus obviously uses the form of the oracle self-consciously as a prophet when he gives the Sermon on the Mount the people of his day would have recognized the significance of his beginning, giving this list of sayings that he would say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart, and so on. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
He was pronouncing the oracle of God's will upon the people. The divine blessing, the divine benediction to those who did these certain things. But the flip side of the oracle of will was the oracle of woe, which was a grim and terrifying announcement of God's judgment. Hear the prophet Amos when he announces the judgment of God upon the nations and upon the cities. For three transgressions and four Damascus, woe unto you, Jesus. When he gave his scathing denunciation of the Pharisees, prefaced his words of judgment using the Old Testament prophetic oracle by saying, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You cross land and sea to make one convert, and once you've made him, you make him twice the child of hell than you are yourself. I mentioned in our first session how rare it is in all of Scripture for anything to be raised to the repetitive level of the superlative, and I said the only attribute of God that's ever repeated to the third degree is the attribute of holiness, holy, holy, holy. But it's not the only thing that is repeated to the third degree. Jeremiah, the prophet, when he went and gave the judgment of God before the temple of the Jews, he said to them, you people come here and you say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah was saying, in effect, your hypocrisy is to the nth degree. You trust in lying words, words that cannot profit. And the darkest hour of this planet is foretold to us in the apocalypse of the New Testament, where we are told that in that last hour, the bowls of divine wrath will be poured out upon this planet. And we hear of this heavenly figure flying across the darkened sky announcing the final judgment of God with the repetition of one word singing what? Woe! 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 You don't want to be around when that bird starts to sing. you see what happens here in the sixth chapter of Isaiah? That one who is called of God and set apart, whose words, the very words of God are placed in his mouth, the first oracle that he pronounces is an oracle of doom upon himself. Woe is me. As soon as Isaiah sees the unveiled holiness of God, for the first time in Isaiah's life, he understands who God is. And the very second that Isaiah understood who God was, for the first time in his life, he understood who Isaiah was. And what came out of his mouth was something akin to a primordial Green curses himself. Woe 
is me, for I am undone. I know the more modern translations use, for I am ruined. But I like this old one, undone, for this reason. If we look at what's happening here through the glasses of modern psychoanalysis, we could describe this experience that Isaiah relates as an experience of psychological disintegration. That is, disintegration. We use words to describe a person who is healthy, we say that that person is whole. He has everything together. And when we see somebody who is losing it, we say what? He's falling apart. Isn't it interesting that a synonym that we use for virtue in our language is the word integrity. That is, that we have everything about our lives meshed together in a coherent and a consistent way. Now, ladies and gentlemen, here is the man who possesses the most integrity of the Jewish people who comes and gets one glimpse of the holiness of God and he immediately suffers disintegration. He comes apart. That's what happens to people who catch a glimpse of the character of God. Because you see that we spend our entire lives veiling ourselves from the true character of God. Because our natural bent, our natural inclination, beloved, is to hide ourselves from him. Because we know instinctively that as soon as the holy appears, it exposes and reveals anything and anyone who is not holy by virtue of that standard. We have a justification for every sin that we commit. We are masters of self-deceit. Calvin makes this statement. He said, as long as our gaze is fixed on the ground, we're safe. We flatter ourselves. We address ourselves as demigods, slightly lower than eternal deities. We do what the Apostle Paul warned us not to do when he said, those who judge themselves by themselves and judge themselves among themselves are not wise. Let me tell you something about human nature. We could go out into the streets of America and ask this question to everyone on the street, And I can't believe how many people would answer it the same way. If I said to people, are you perfect? I'd be willing to bet that 99 out of 100 people that we ask that question, no matter what their background is, would say, no, I'm not perfect. The one axiom that all Americans will vote for is that nobody's perfect. Errare humanum est. To err is human. Nobody's perfect. But that doesn't seem to bother us at all. There's not one person in a thousand who will deny that they're not perfect. That's a double negative. Let me put it the other way. There's not one person in a thousand who will claim to be perfect. 
And beloved, there's not one person in a thousand who understands the seriousness of not being perfect. Because the standard by which we will be judged ultimately is not a curve. But it will be the standard of God's perfection. Now I hear this. Everybody's entitled to one mistake. Says who? Where did God ever say you can all have one mistake? One free sin. One free act of treason against my authority. One free insult to my integrity. He never said that, did he? But even if he did, how long ago did you use yours up? Everybody's entitled to one mistake. I hope we get more than one. One mistake a second is more like it. But you see, we're comfortable with our imperfection. We judge ourselves by each other. No matter how ashamed I may be of the weaknesses in my life, and sometimes when I look inside myself, I make myself sick. Don't you feel like that? Do you ever disgust yourself? How can I do that? I can't believe that I'm that selfish, or I can't believe that I'm that covetous or lustful or whatever it is. But we are quick to excuse ourselves because we look around and we can always find somebody who's more depraved than we are, at least on the surface. So we can be like the, the, the public or the, or the Pharisee that Jesus talked about that went up to the temple to pray and said, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like that miserable guy over there. And so we find a way to excuse ourselves and to flatter ourselves until we see the standard. And when that happens, we are undone as Isaiah was undone, when he saw pure holiness and understood what it was that he wasn't. He couldn't stand it, and he's on his face, and he's screaming out in pain, and he's saying, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I wonder why he said what he said. When he cries out now in his terror, he said, I'm undone because I have a dirty mouth. I wonder why he, it went to his mouth. If you read the teaching of Jesus, one of the things that comes through his teaching again and again is a lesson that almost no one in the 20th century believes anymore. Jesus, if Jesus of Nazareth taught anything, he taught repeatedly that someday every human being would be called before the tribunal of God. That every one of us will have to give an account before the holy creator of heaven and earth. And Jesus says that on that day, Every idle word that we have ever spoken will be brought into the judgment. That everything that we've ever done, everything that we've ever said, every promise we've ever made and broken, 
every blasphemous statement that's come from our mouth, every slanderous word that we've made towards our neighbor will be brought up on the table. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles the man. It's what comes out. God has given us our mouths as vehicles to praise him, to express his truth. And instead, we've used our mouths to lie, to hurt other people, to blaspheme God. We have dirty minds. When Isaiah saw the holiness of God, his hand went instinctively to his mouth. As he cried out this curse upon himself. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what did God do? Did God look down from the throne and see his servant writhing in the dust in all of this remorse and repentance like some medieval monk in a monastery involved in self-flagellation and say, come, 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 come now, Isaiah. You're taking yourself far too seriously. Don't have such a morbid preoccupation with your own guilt. You're going to give a lifetime of study for the likes of Sigmund Freud carrying on like this. Don't be so neurotic. You've got a guilt hang-up. I mean, you must have been reading Jonathan Edwards or anticipating Queen Victoria. That's not what he did. Nor did God look at his servant writhing in the dirt and say to him, Suffer, you miserable creep. You deserve to be undone and ruined. Go ahead. Let the curse fall upon yourself. I've had it with the likes of you, Isaiah. I'll catch you later. That's not what he did. Tell you something else he didn't do, ladies and gentlemen. God didn't say a word to Isaiah about cheap grace. God didn't say, look, Isaiah, all I want you to do is sign your name on a membership card or raise your hand and you can come into my kingdom. No. God saw his servant in pain, and he nodded to one of the seraphim, and the seraph went over to the altar where the white-hot coals were burning there in the holy place, and the coals were so hot that even the the angel's flesh couldn't come in contact with him. He had to use tongues, and with these tongues, he took one of these white-hot coals, and he flew over to Isaiah, and we read in the text that he placed this hot coal on his lips. You know how sensitive the human lips are? It's with our lips that we express one of the most intimate forms of tactile communication, the kiss. The nerve endings of the lips are hypersensitive. And yet this man has the experience of having a hot coal placed right on his lips. You know that what happened is the instant that coal touched his lips, there was a huge blister formed on him. You could hear his his flesh sizzle. Why? Because God was being cruel and unusual in his punishment of Isaiah? No. The coal was applied to cauterize his lips, to purify him, to heal. 
heal them, to prepare them for the message that he was to give. Listen to what it says. One of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I'm a Protestant by conviction, but one of the things that I miss from the Roman Catholic tradition is the confessional. Yes, the confessional was at the heart of the Protestant controversy, but only one element of it. We have a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. How I long to be able to go someplace to someone that I can see and hear and experience their, their real presence and say, Father, I have sinned. This is what I have done. And list my transgressions. Get them off my chest. And then be able to get on my knees and hear somebody say to me, in the name of Jesus Christ, Kay Absolvo, I absolve you. Your sins are forgiven. How would you like to hear Christ come in this room right now and walk to where you are privately and say to you, I know about every one of your sins. But right now, I want to tell you that every sin that you've ever committed in your life is forgiven. Your guilt is taken away, all of it. You never again have to worry about the sins that you have committed against God. I am forgiving you and cleansing you this moment and forever. What would you give to hear Jesus say that to you? That's what God said to Isaiah. It's God, Isaiah. All of your guilt. You don't have to speak the curse any longer. I'm taking it away. Your sins are forgiven. They are atoned for. And now as Isaiah is trying to deal with that, God speaks once more and he said, whom shall I send and who shall go for us? And the first thing that Isaiah says after cursing himself is what? Here am I. Send me. Notice he didn't say, here I am. That would be telling God his geographical location. No, he said, God, here am I. He can hardly say it through these lips. Ladies and gentlemen, the price of repentance is very, very painful. True repentance is honest before God. And to come into the presence of a holy God is a painful thing. But when we come humbly, as Isaiah did, when we come on our face, God is ready to forgive cleanse and descend. The only justification for any missionary's mission, for any preacher's preaching, is that that person has experienced 
the forgiveness of God. Let's pray. Father, we also have dirty mouths. Still think that we could not possibly said. survive in your presence were it not for the atonement that you have made for us in Christ. We pray that we might know your forgiveness now and forevermore. That we might say to you, here am I. Send me. Amen. Protect your children. This is Ken Ham on a mission to call the church back to God's word and the gospel. It's been horrifying to watch children being sucked into trans ideology, believing a girl can be a boy or vice versa. Many are rushing to change their names and pronouns. They then get on puberty blockers, which, as we saw yesterday, are very dangerous. What can we do to protect our children? Well, there are three ways. One, pray. Two, establish family worship time. Spend time daily in the truth of God's word as a family. Truth is the best offense to lies. And three, be careful about internet use. Its content is often what's driving us. Parents, don't let the world teach your children. You teach them from God's word. God's word has the answers our culture and our children need. Learn more when you visit our award-winning faith-building website at AnswersRadio.com. AnswersRadio.com. In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that what Jesus said, blessed are the poor? No, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. But you probably hear it the other way more often than you hear it the right way. What? In Luke 6:20, Jesus said, blessed are the poor. And it does not say the poor in spirit. So Jesus did say the poor are blessed by God. Take a closer look at that verse. Luke 6:20 says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Who is Jesus addressing? his disciples. Therefore, this means blessed are the poor among my disciples. Though you may lack material things, you are rich in heavenly blessings. The Bible does not say everyone who is poor receives the kingdom of God. Do all the poor go to heaven? Below what income level? If you're saved by living in poverty, the gospel would be meaningless. We are saved by faith in Christ, not our socioeconomic level. Rich or poor, everyone needs the gospel. But no matter how much or how little you have, no matter how popular you are or what you've accomplished, Philippians 3.8 says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If you don't have Jesus, you have nothing. But whoever has Christ has everything when we understand the text. While God is necessary, even God is not sufficient. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. We love you, Dennis, but your hermeneutic and your view of God is, mm, what's the word I'm looking for? Let's see if we can figure out where you, my Jewish friend, are going wrong. Loneliness is a curse. You know the first thing God says in the Bible about humanity? The 
the very first thing God says. It's not good for man to be alone. First of all, God's first words about humanity were actually in the three verses that came right before the verse that you're quoting, uh, that God said it is not good for man to be alone. God told man to subdue the earth, not eat of the tree of good and evil. Further, Dennis, your interpretation of verse 18 about loneliness as opposed to being alone, there's really nothing in the context of that passage that suggests that man needed a woman or he would be lonely. It merely states it is not good for him to be alone. The immediate context then paints the picture and helps us understand what God meant. The immediate context is about procreation. Furthermore, when you scoot back to Genesis 1, God made male and female in his own image. So the context paints a different picture than poor Adam is alone without another human being. Now, this isn't to suggest that man wasn't designed to be in community, but to conclude that man would be lonely if he only had God as a companion is... Theoretically, Adam was not alone. He had God. This pastor made the brilliant point, while God is necessary, even God is not sufficient. Hermeneutical mistake number two, failing to remember what the rest of the Bible teaches. We call this the analogy of Scripture, that the Bible interprets the Bible. The entire Bible must be considered before you draw a conclusion from a text. So let's take a look at what the Bible says about God's sufficiency to address your conclusion. Psalm 16, David writes, in your presence is fullness of joy. No loneliness there. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And that should be enough. But David, repeatedly, you have given me the joy of being in your presence. Needless to say, if you only had God as your companion, you wouldn't be lonely or bored or sad. So what did God mean when he said it isn't good for man to be alone if it wasn't about loneliness? Using the analogy of scripture, there are at least five things that weren't sufficient. Number one, man couldn't subdue the earth without a helper. That was his, he needed help. Two, because man is created in God's image, that would be your Genesis 1 again, and God leads Who would man be able to lead if he was going to reflect God? Three, God created male and female in his image because it takes both genders to sufficiently do that. Number four, procreation. Man can't have a baby with God or be intimate with God. Five, without babies, there would be no human race to save, and therefore, no Messiah. God made us to need people. We don't only need God. Dennis, really? God's company is less fulfilling than human company? Not according to David, who would rather spend one day in God's house than a thousand elsewhere. Yes, God made us to be with others, ultimately, so we can live in unity the same way God lives in a Trinitarian unity. To conclude, God is insufficient in any way 
actually decreases his deity. Just as if you would say that God is less than omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent. Sorry, Dennis, but it's only a terribly low view of God that would come to your conclusion. It sounds heretical, but it's beautiful. It's not heretical. Actually, it's not remotely beautiful. And it is heretical because it makes God less sufficient than his creation. There is no entity more sufficient in every regard than God. Dennis, if you'd like a free copy of our hermeneutics resource, Herman Who will happily send it to you. And if you're not Dennis Prager and you would like to make sure that you do not practice Dennis Prager hermeneutics, but instead utilize the grammatical, historical, biblical interpretive method, encourage you to visit wretched.org for Herman Who. Who owns the children? This is Ken Ham, founder of the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. I have a question for you. Who owns the children? Well, our culture today largely believes that the government does. But is that what the Bible teaches? Well, no. The Bible says children are a gift from God to parents. Children belong to parents. And it's a parent's responsibility to teach and train children. Sadly, many parents are going along with the so-called experts when it comes to trans ideology. They think they must follow their child when it comes to gender. No, God's word and science teach we're male or female. And the gospel is the answer to the confusion of our culture. Lead your children into truth and don't let the government do it. Yes, God's word has answers to the issues of our day. Visit AnswersRadio.com to learn more and listen to this program again and read articles by Ken at AnswersRadio.com. In Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that what Jesus said, blessed are the poor? No, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. But you probably hear it the other way more often than you hear it the right way. The poor in spirit are those who know they need God's help. To those who confess their spiritual bankruptcy to God, they will receive the kingdom of God. So this is not about anyone who is poor. It's talking about a person who humbly acknowledges they need Jesus. At the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 3 through 12, is a section referred to as the Beatitudes. These are the verses that begin, blessed are, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. Matthew was originally written in Greek, and the Greek word for blessed is makarioi, which means happy. This describes a believer who is happy because he is fortunate, approved of by God, and provided for. Blessing is connected to faith, for as Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The one who is loved by the Father through faith in the Son is blessed. Many people say the Beatitudes are about the marginalized. No, the Beatitudes are about the followers of Jesus, poor in spirit, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. These are the children of God when we understand the text. Get social with Truth Be Told Radio. Check us out on our Facebook like page at Truth Be Told Radio. You can find our website at truthbetoldradio.com. That is 
T-R-U-T-H-B-E-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O.com. TruthBeToldRadio.com. Do you have any questions, suggestions, comments, or want to tell us anything? Send those emails to TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com. Remember, by sending us your email, you give us permission to read it on the air. So write us at TruthBeToldRadioShow at gmail.com. If you'd like to read blogs, we've got you covered. Check out ours at TruthBeToldRadio.blogspot.com. That's TruthBeToldRadio.blogspot.com. Also, follow us on Twitter as Truth, the letter B, then Told Radio. That is T-R-U-T-H-B-T-O-L-D-R-A-D-I-O. Once again, that is Truth, the letter B only, not B-E, Told Radio. This is due to the restraints for Twitter's username link. Finally, to learn the testimony of Melissa Canchoa, the hostess of Truth Be Told Radio, see smilesandstuff.com. That's S-M-I-L-E-S-A-N-D-S-T-U-F-F dot C-O-M. Smilesandstuff.com. So stay social with us, and thanks for listening to Truth Be Told Radio. Are you Jewish? Yes. Are you a Christian? No. I'm going to be real honest. I'm concerned um, about my immortal soul. Are you sorry for your sin? Yes. Be merciful to me. Please forgive my sins. You're a math teacher at this college that I've been coming to almost every day for about 14 years. And you spoke about your colleague who's on staff, very intelligent gentleman who spoke very quickly. Doctor of what? Yes, I'm a doctor of chemistry, PhD chemist, and PhD physical chemist. Yeah, I'm specialized in the different nanosystems, the different types. And he's a delightful character. And you watched that video, is that correct? Yes. And what did you get out of it? What I got out of it was that uh, Mickey doesn't believe. Uh, he doesn't believe in God. He believes that maybe some master creator that created everything, but he doesn't believe in a human corporeal, I think that's what you say, God, yeah. living God. So are you Jewish? Yes. Are you Christian? No. Now, you said to me something about being troubled. What did you mean? Oh, I saw your video uh, with Nikki, and I'm concerned, and I'm going to be real honest, I'm concerned um, about my immortal soul. Um, as, as a Jew, I'm very uncomfortable talking about it because we're, um, we're told to be very careful. The, the Christian faith is based on Judaism. It's out of context that the Messiah will not be uh, man of man. Reuben, I'm Jewish. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> not a full Jew. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's so you, you, you can be very relaxed because this is just a couple of Jews chatting about it. That's wild. Yeah, if you ever read the scriptures, the Old Testament, they speak of the Jewish Messiah, Isaiah 53. can't be the nation of Israel. It speaks of a, a man, says he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, speaking of Messiah. So how are you doing with the law of Moses? We went through the law with your colleague, our intelligent friend. Not so good. I've, I've also watched other of your videos, and I'm a lying, cheating, blasphemous, I can't remember the last one. Adulterer at heart. Adulterer at heart. Yeah. 
So where are you going when you die? Um, as Jews, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. We spend uh, our time thinking about making heaven on earth. Yeah, it's not working, is it? Not at all. It's a real mess. Yeah, the Bible's the instruction book, and humanity has thrown away the instruction book. Have you ever tried to put together an appliance and not look through the instructions first, and it's a mess, and then you go to the instructions after, and the thing's a mess? That's what humanity has done with God's word. Do you understand the gospel? Uh, the Christian gospel? or Well, the gospel is the good news that God sent a Messiah to suffer and die on the cross. Let's go back to Moses where they slew an animal, a lamb, there would be a covering for sin temporarily, like the Passover. Do you celebrate Passover? Not so often. Do you understand what it means that you put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and death passed over the children, the children because they had the faith, the trust in God to put that blood on the door. This is a crazy thing to do, but they did it and death passed over. Well, when John the Baptist, who was a Jew, saw Jesus the first time, who was a Jew, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God provided a lamb. Do you remember the story of Isaac and Abraham? Abraham was going to slay Isaac, and, and God gave him a, a ram and caught in the thicket. And Abraham said, God himself will provide a lamb. And that's what God did through Jesus. The Bible says he was the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. So when Jesus came to this earth, the Bible says he was God in human form. Isaiah 9, Old Testament. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And his name should be called Wonderful. That's what the Bible says. God gave a son. Psalm 2 says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and he perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Jesus called himself the son of God, but the Bible actually tells us he was God in human form, the express image of the invisible God, because the Lamb of God had to be perfect without sin. And so when God created for himself a body and filled that body as a hand filled a glove, we're looking at God manifest in the flesh. Wow. Yeah, wow was the word. It's just awe-inspiring. So when Jesus suffered and died on the cross and cried out, it is finished, he was saying the debt has been paid. God's law is satisfied. Like in a court of law, when someone pays your fines, the judge says, you're out of here, someone's paid your fine. The law is satisfied. But when Jesus cried out, it is finished, he was saying the law of God is satisfied. And that means God can legally grant us everlasting life. He can dismiss our case. Let us live forever legally, all because of the fact Jesus suffered and died on the cross to take the punishment for the sin of the world. And then he rose from the dead and defeated death. And if you'll repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, the Bible says God will remit your sins in a second and grant everlasting life as a free gift, not because you're good, but because he's good and kind and rich in mercy. So are you sorry for your sin? Yes. You know that's called contrition? Did you know that? No. Yeah. And the Bible says godly sorrow works repentance. And so when you've got a contrite heart, that brings about genuine sorrow for sin or repentance. The Bible speaks of repentance unto life. So are you ready to repent and put your faith in Jesus? I don't know. I'm afraid. Well, what are you afraid of? God is the God of Israel and is the lover of your soul. And you've said you were praying to meet me, weren't you? Yes. Yeah. Hasn't God answered your prayer today? <laughs> yes. And so just take a little step of faith. Say, God, I trust you with this. I'm going to yield my life to you and ask you to forgive my sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. Is that all it takes? 
so simple a child can understand it. Jesus said, unless you become as a little child, you're not into the kingdom of God. Have you ever heard the story of the prodigal son? I've heard of it. I couldn't quote it. Let me share it with you. A young man went to his dad and said, Dad, I want my inheritance now. That was his due to me. So dad gave him his inheritance. And he went to a far country, and the Bible says he wanted to spend it on riotous living and prostitutes. So he went to a far country away from his father. And a famine came on the land, and he saw he was desiring pig food as he sat in that pig sty, because that's the only job he could get. And he thought, my father's servants have got it better than I. I'll go back to my father and say, I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight, take me on as your hired servant. So he got up from that pigsty, went back to his father, and the Bible says his father saw him from a great way off, and he ran to him. This is a Jewish father running to a rebellious son. He put his arms around him, fell upon his neck and kissed him, and he said, bring a robe for my son, bring a ring for his finger, shoes for his feet, because my son was once dead, but now he's alive. And that's a picture of God's love for you. You've been a rebel, turned your back on God and desired unclean things, pig food, and yet God runs to meet you halfway. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Jesus was teaching. If I were you, I'd just say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Please forgive my sins. Be merciful to me. Please forgive my sins. Let's bear in prayer and I'll pray for you. I'll, I'll pray for you. Father, I pray for Reuben. Thank you for this divine encounter today. I thank you for your love for him and the fact that you have made provision for his forgiveness of sins. You provided a Jewish Messiah to suffer for us so that we could have a righteous standing in your sight, not because of our goodness, but because of your kindness. I pray that you'll help Reuben today, give him peace of heart and peace of mind to know that he's made the right decision to put his trust in Jesus and to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, do you have a Bible at home? Or a 30 minutes? Yes. I'll take you to a ministry and give you some free stuff. People often say, I'd love you to talk to my unbelieving friend or family member. But why not send them this video? Just click on the share button and say, I'd love to know what you think of this. There's nothing offensive about that. Send it and then pray. Do it today. Real quick, here are three things to help you grow in your faith. The Living Waters Podcast, The Evidence Study Bible, 200 of the most commonly asked questions of the Christian faith, and much more. The Starter Kit, four of the most popular gospel tracks, available at livingwaters.com. If you've not seen the video that Reuben watched, you can watch it right now by clicking up to your left. So you're Jewish? Yes. Are you Christian? Can boys really become girls? This is Ken Ham, and we've launched the video streaming platform of Answers TV. All this week, we've been looking at the idea that gender is something we can just change. Girls can be boys, and boys can be girls. But this isn't true. God has created us either male or female. That's what the Bible teaches, beginning in Genesis. And it's a truth confirmed by science. Males have XY chromosomes, females have XX chromosomes. All the drugs and surgeries in the world don't change your genetics. They don't make a man a woman, or a woman a man. God has made you the way you are on purpose. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by him in his very image, as either male or female. And that's a good thing. Yes, 
God's Word is true. You can learn more answers to your questions when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. Be equipped in your faith when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Question number one is, what is the millennium? What is the millennium? It's this picture of Christ's reign. Question number two, when is the millennium? And that's where people disagree. You have people who hold a premillennial position, argues that the millennium comes after Christ's second coming. So Jesus is going to return to the earth, and when he returns to the earth, there's going to be a thousand years where he reigns on the earth. And then the consummation of all things. These people usually interpret the thousand years literally, though, though not always. Um, there are some premillennialists who won't interpret thousand years literally. They are usually pessimistic about the future. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus is going to return. Uh, sometimes this can lead to a kind of why bother mentality as it relates to the culture. Why bother? We know things are just going to get worse and worse and worse, and then Jesus is going to return, so why bother? Why rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic since we're all going to sink? Okay? Then there's the post-millennial view. This is the idea that the millennium comes before the second coming, that this thousand years of Christ's reign actually occurs, this thousand-year golden age actually occurs, and then Christ comes at the end of the earth, at the end of the age. These individuals usually, almost always, see the millennium as symbolic, not a literal thousand years, but a symbolic thousand years. And are very optimistic about the future. Obviously, things are going to get better and better and better. The gospel is going to spread and spread and spread. The world is going to become more and more and more Christianized. And there's the amillennial view. The amillennial view, uh, again, a lot of people just go and they say, ah, that means no or not, millennial. There is no millennium. Um, that's not actually what the amillennial view is. The amillennial view sees the millennium as the age between Christ's first and second coming, which is now. The amillennial view is that Christ is reigning now. The amillennial view says that what happens at the end of this period of time is that Christ returns at the consummation of all things at the end of the age. Therefore, people hold this view always view the thousand years as symbolic and have an already not yet approach to the future. Christ is reigning here and now in and through his church, and yet his reign is not consummated until he returns in the future. What is a woman? This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine called Answers. Who would have thought even 10 years ago people would be asking, what is a woman? But, well, here we are. Last year, one dictionary added this to the definition of woman, an adult who identifies as a female. 
In other words, there's no such thing as a man or a woman. They're meaningless terms. But we can cut through the confusion of our culture with the truth and simplicity of God's word. So God created man in his own image, male and female, he created them. Men are males and women are females. It's simple. Even a child can easily tell the difference. The confusion only comes from our culture. Let's get back to God's word. We always should want to go back to the Bible, discover how to think biblically, starting from that foundation. When you visit AnswersRadio.com, that's AnswersRadio.com. That's all I got for Truth Be Told Radio. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening and join us next time as we shine the light of biblical truth on Truth Be Told Radio.